Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, I guess we'll get started. Um, and um, our tradition is to go around and to uh, say our names. And we get to do it again. So, my name is Cass. My name is Henry. Matthew. Jack. Jeff. Tony. Jay. I'm Richard. Stephen. Grisha. Stephen. Okay. Um, and uh, it's still kind of exhilarating to be together in this space. This is our second. Uh, meeting in, in person, and um, thank you so much for coming out, and um, welcome to, uh, we're welcome to share the space with uh, everybody on Zoom as well. Thank you for being here. Um, our speaker today, um, who said just, I could just say, here's Stephen, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I just... Just so that you know, Stephen Tierney is a professor emeritus of counseling psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He began his Buddhist practice in 1993 and is now an ordained priest in the Soto Zen lineage of Suzuki Roshi. He is a licensed psychotherapist in private practice in San Francisco, specializing in addiction and recovery, life transitions, and resilience. His therapeutic approaches are grounded in mindfulness-based, trauma-informed therapies. He is the co-founder and the CEO of the San Francisco Mindfulness Foundation. Dr. Tierney is a certified suicide prevention and intervention trainer and offers community-based workshops to promote safer, healthier communities. So let me just say now, here's Stephen. <laughs> So, good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it is really, um, as Kat said, wonderful to be in a room um, with, with uh, other gay Buddhists um, and to be connected on Zoom, which has been our lifesaver for the last 15 months. Um, and, um, and actually to know that um, some people are not here or on Zoom that will hear this because they will listen to it later in the week or some, somewhere when it's a rainy day and they need something to do. Um, but I think it's interesting because we're in a time when, um, you know, the, the truth, relative or absolute, is, is on full display. Do we wear a mask? Do we get vaccinated? Do we come together? Do we stay home? Um, and what we get the opportunity to do in, in Gay Buddhist Fellowship is, is, you know, you're one of the leaders and, and coming back together in rooms um, uh, before other sanghas. And the real opportunity for us is to really practice interconnection and compassion. That we respect whatever decision people make. Um, that you know, some people are ready for hugs, some people have been ready for hugs, 
Um, and some people aren't, and there's, there's no right or wrong in that. Some people are comfortable being without a mask in certain situations, and other people are not. Some people are comfortable being in, a, in, a, in the temple, and other people are not. And all of that's okay. That we, we get the opportunity to trust that our brothers have made well thought out and reasonable decisions. Um, and we also get the opportunity to own our experience, right? If you're afraid, um, or nervous, or um, jubilant about being in rooms, whichever one it is, it's okay. And we get to own that and, and, uh, and work with that and respect each other for all of those decisions. So I think, as I was thinking about coming today, I was thinking about, on a very practical level, our community, you know, uh, has some advantages in terms of preparation for dealing with what we're dealing with right now. Many of, many of us, I won't do an age count in here or on, on Zoom, but many of us are of a certain age that we remember in the 1980s, we were told to isolate. Um, we were told not to touch each other or anyone else. We were told not to have sex. Um, and in 1984, they put out a thing from CDC that said, be sure not to exchange saliva um, because that could be dangerous. Um, which in 1986, two years later, they acknowledged that that was not based on any science, it was based on somebody who didn't like the idea of us exchanging saliva. But they also did studies of the first 300 uh, guys that got infected with HIV, and some of you remember this, that they actually published official documents that said, we studied the 300 guys, and the things that they seem to have in common are wearing tight jeans and no underwear. <laughs> so something that put out a report that said, you should probably stop that. <laughs> so they started using a phrase that was um, uh, sufficient, necessary, but not sufficient. So there were things that were true, but they didn't have anything to do um, with uh, the transmission of, of HIV. So instead of an apology, which is what they should have done for, to our community, um, uh, because as, as we all recall, and everybody knows, they initially called it gay-related immune deficiency. Um, and it was, as we're you know, in the last two years, a virus. And viruses um, are not uh, picky about, about things like that. So a lot of things happened. Um, and our community was left. We as individuals were left. We as gay Buddhists were left with, what do we do with that? You know, um, and what do we do? So of course, many of us died. That's what they did. Um, many folks um, became ill and lived with complications for a very long time, and still. Um, but they and us, in massive numbers, um, did something different. And what we did was we pulled together. Um, we took care of each other. Um, we we uh, provided health care that the hospitals and clinics would not provide at the time. Um, and we we became activists some of us who were not activists prior to that, and we said, we need to make sure that this fight is against the virus and not against the gay, gay community, gay people, our ability to live and love the way we needed to and wanted to. And then we took it beyond that. You know, We raised lots and lots of money um, for women and children with HIV. Um, many of us got involved in creating and supporting prevention and intervention efforts in countries across the globe, in many of which our very lifestyle made us illegal. And it didn't stop us from saying, that's government, like we have government, and there are people who are sick and they need us. And so we were an army of caring um, and loving people. And um, what we found was that through all of that, we were suffering. Um, everybody was suffering you know, from HIV, given the numbers. 
Um, and that's the first noble truth of Buddhism. So as we come together, we say, there was suffering. There was indeed suffering. So if we roll forward to 2019, uh, 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 2020 uh, actually, uh, by the time it got to most of us, another virus has been identified. And this virus sweeps across um, the globe. And as the numbers reach the thousands and the tens of thousands, governments and organized medicine and academic medicine and big pharma poured much, much money in immediately. Um, and they got um, tests and vaccines out to the communities across the world in months and not um, years. And so um, we take a deep breath and we can be frustrated by that. Or I think that we could, living in the present moment, we could say, you know what, we did that. We changed the healthcare system and the way that public health is run so that that could not happen again. And the mechanisms which they used were the same mechanisms to speed things up, were the same mechanisms of the Ryan White Care Act. Emergency medical um, needs responded to as a genuine emergency. So we might, and I did, um, early on in the, the COVID-19 epidemic, spend some time being a little frustrated, um, wondering about the 79 million people um, who are, have uh, been infected with HIV, the 35 million who have died, and the 35 plus million who are living with HIV today. And I was frustrated and I wondered what would have happened if they did, responded differently and with less homophobia. But the fact of the matter is they didn't. Um, and, and we didn't allow them to um, go unchecked. We, we got active and we got organized um, and we followed our spiritual practices of, of helping all beings. Um, and so, um, you know, here we are. And we're in this place again today in October of 2021. Um, some of us got hugs when we came in, um, and again, some didn't, and, and that's a, a personal um, quest. Um, folks were touching each other. Um, I'm not sure, looking around the room, I'm not taking anybody's inventory, but I'm guessing that some of you are having sex with other people. Um, and, and guessing and hoping I should <laughs> It's been a long, cold, isolating 18 months. Uh, and, and I strongly suggest that, uh, that we, as comfort allows us, as our own understanding of our lives as we know them, um, uh, you know, that we get back to, that we get to living in, in this, um, this world. So how do we as gay Buddhists um, celebrate a gradual movement into something called living with COVID? Um, and you know, we've got some experience with an expression like that. So what we know is that it's not post-COVID. Um, COVID's not over and it seems like never will be. Um, and this is not a new normal. Um, you know, that, that's um, giving up, it seems to me, to be common, whatever this is, we've got a new normal. I think what we're in is transition. We're in transition from a lockdown and isolation. Um, and now we're in a transition. Um, we're here today and on Zoom and, and listening um, in, in a few days. Um, and what we know is that it's changed how we interact with each other, when we can be with each other, how close we can be to each other, touching, etc. Um, and we know that <clears throat> in this case, um, the response to this particular virus has, has been rapid um, because of things we in our community taught the government and the big healthcare how to do. So, so we can um, 
feel, feel rightly proud um, and rightly satisfied and engaged, of course, to keep them working. Um, but what is our spiritual practice, really, as gay Buddhists, um, tell us about living today and tomorrow as we go through this transition? So I want to share some ideas, and then hopefully we'll have enough time so everybody else can share some ideas as well. The first one I want to share is um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who was, um, uh, I had the pleasure, privilege of, of studying with at Plum Village in France for a short period of time. Um, always used an expression that comes from um, the early sutras, and it's Drista Dharma Sukha Vedarein. And it said, translates as Thich Nhat Hanh translates, dwelling happily in things as they are. So when I first heard that, it was, you know, in the time of uh, HIV, and I thought, well, easy for you to say, sitting, you know, celibate in, in a monastery in the south of France, uh, how can we be happy with things as they are? And, um, you know, what he taught, and, and, you know, what I'm sharing with you today is it doesn't mean we lie back and take whatever comes at us, uh, unless that's your thing, of course. Um, <laughs> but what it means is uh, that we don't get into debates or fights with reality. You know, reality always wins, and so that's the part about accepting things exactly as they are. There's a wonderful old Midwestern version of that teaching about not fighting with reality that a lot of you have heard, and it's never get into a wrestling match with a pig. You'll both get dirty, and the pig likes it. <laughs> so, when we wake up in the morning um, and we start our days and, and we you know go through life. We, we really have the opportunity to say there are certain things that are facts, and most of us accept facts, and we know in the current, in the current world we live in, so what we think are facts, some other people may not think are facts. Um, but that first noble truth um, says there is suffering. People get sick, um, people die, um, people get dumped by their boyfriends or partners or husbands, Sometimes we have to do the breaking up with some guy who's really nice, but just not right for right now. And all of that hurts, and there's suffering, and our jobs, and our families, and, you know, and all of the stuff that we live with. So there is suffering in all of our lives. Um, and we've been taught um, because we want, that we suffer partially because we want things to be different. So a big part of Buddhist practice is the acceptance of things as they are, but then, what Thich Nhat Hanh and other Buddhist teachers, and, and myself included, try to teach is this business of being engaged. So we acknowledge that there is heartbreak, we acknowledge that there's poverty, racism, um, COVID, and, and uh, all those other things. Um, and then we have some choices about how we decide what we decide to do with it. We can sit and suffer and wallow in some suffering, and I strongly recommend that for periods of time. You know, I think otherwise you're living in denial. You know, if somebody came to you and said, we went to the family reunion and 27 of the 54 people there got COVID, um, you, you can suffer a little bit, you know, sit and say, why did I go? Do I have it? You know, et cetera. Um, but, and I think, you know, as I mentioned, I think that's part of owning our own experience, right? Nobody can tell you, well, you didn't get it, so you didn't have to suffer. It's like, well, all my family members did. And so, and I did not go to a family reunion there in Michigan, <laughs> just, just for transparency, talking about the theory of going to a family reunion. Um, but the other thing we do is to get active, um, actively involved in service, you know, being of service to other people. 
um, those who put this meeting together today. This is not an easy thing to get this all set up, so thank you and thank you. And, um, there are ways to be of service. Um, somebody ran out and got some, some refreshments for after the meeting, and I forget who that was, but thank, thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, and there are just tiny ways that we can be of service. Um, when the uh, uh, COVID first started, um, the people in my apartment building, there were 25 apartments, and they came, started coming by knocking on the door saying, how are you doing, are you okay? I said, yeah. And I didn't have any idea what was going on. And then I turned on the news a couple days later, and there was Mayor Breed saying, there are elderly, frail, elderly people uh, living in apartments all by themselves. Please go check on them and make sure they're okay. <laughs> So, that was the first time I realized that people considered me to be elderly and frail. Um, <laughs> but the other thing we do is on different levels, we provide um, energy and support for people that are making, creating um, different healthcare policies and different whatever and, and creating change. So, um, Leanne Shoot, I think, has taught here, has been here, and, and probably talked about um, her new rendering of the Four Noble Truths. Um, and, and I won't try to, um, to do that in detail because she does it so much better. But she expresses the first noble truth as harm and harming happen in life. And so there are many ways to interpret that, and I've talked with her about it. And the way I sit with it um, is that as Buddhists, we have you know, traditionally said uh, there is suffering. Life is suffering. And, and that almost says that it's generalized. And it almost allows one to say, hmm, well, everybody suffers, and then everybody doesn't suffer, and you know, etc. And it sort of can minimize the actual fact of what's happening in people's lives. And so, if instead we use um, Leanne's uh, language, which says harm and harming happen, it, we don't have to get into a blame game and all that. But we acknowledge um, that there are organizations, politicians, and other people who willfully place profit ahead of people. Um, who have a single agenda about ego or personal advancement that comes before the common good. And so when we think about harm happens, um, we don't have to say that just suffering rains down upon folks. What we get a chance to say is there are people, we all suffer for the variety of reasons that the Buddha taught, um, but there are people that are exacerbating that suffering. And there are ways that we can respond to that. Um, if we make ourselves aware of when is it suffering and when is it harm and harm harming being done. And how we respond to that, it's, it's our suffering, so we sit with it, we meditate, we bring mindful awareness to what's going on and how we can deal with that. Um, if it's harm and harming being done, there might be other ways that individuals want to, want to respond to that, or the community. There's a large sign outside the door today that tells people to stop using fossil fuel hanging on the front of the building. So this, this sangha um, has decided that that's important enough to take public stance on. Um, and that's an example, it seems to me, um, if any of you work in the oil industry, I apologize, but that's an example to me of an opportunity to say, this is, as Buddhists, that, that is something that we need to speak up about. Um, so in the second noble truth, um, Leanne suggests that, that one of the things we need to do is take a look at how we respond, right? Certainly during um, all of the viruses that have impacted our community, there have been people who were able to spend hours a week doing volunteer work and months and years um, tending to other folks who were sick and, and doing all those things. 
And there were people that couldn't. Uh, some people were closed down by the suffering of it all. Some people had economic realities that they had to work and didn't have time for all that volunteer stuff. Um, and so what Leanne suggests to us is that we take a look at how we were taught to be with the experience of suffering. How we were taught to be with the experience of harming. And certainly for gay men and, and others who might be listening to this, of a certain age, we grew up with discrimination. Um, you know, it was when I was when I um, was a kid, um, it was illegal to be gay. It was considered a mental illness, um, and if you did anything about it, most of that was um, criminal criminal activity. Um, and so, how were we trained to respond to people harming and harming us? And for a lot of us, the reality of trying to live meant that we lived in a closet that we hid, that we isolated, that we were inward, turned inward. Um, and so how were we trained to deal with that? And what remnants of that training um, are, are still with us? Um, and, you know, we take a look at what familial or cultural from in the gay community, you know, a lot of folks in the gay community, uh, in order not to be isolated, um, turned to the bar and club scene. Um, and that was great for some people. Um, and for other people who were suffering in certain ways, um, the drugs and the alcohol were soothing and healing for a while, and then they were not. Um, but that was a way of, of, um, of responding. And so Leanne suggests there is suffering, or there is harm and harming, and then um, what is the nature of that harming? Who's doing it and why are they doing it? So in the case that I just mentioned, there was homophobia often based on, mostly based on fear and not knowing, and some religious um, um, influences uh, from various places. And so how were we trained to respond to that? Either um, you know, by ignoring it, by isolating, um, and, and ultimately, for some folks, by activism. But when I think about the, this, this way of take, thinking about this, the second noble truth, um, there's the reality of COVID. Um, some people get sick and many people have died. And then there's the reality of the quarantine, right? Um, isolation and depression, anxiety, and addiction that have all skyrocketed. And many articles have been written lately that you've probably all seen about um, the absolute epidemic of loneliness all around the world and the impact that's having on people. Um, and part of that is because we don't trust each other anymore. You know, I think we all trust each other. But out there in the world, um, you know, people say, have you been vaccinated? And you say yes, and they say, show me your card. Um, have you gotten your shots? Yes. Um, do, you know, not so much anymore, but for a while you had to have the, the little card that said that. Um, and then we look around, and um, just in coming to a song like this one, there was a, another song last week where people said, well, they, they all said they were vaccinated. These are um, all gay leaders that were at that particular day. Uh, I think. Um, and people said, yeah, but you know, I don't know. I'm not sure we can trust them. So maybe we should ask to see the card at the door. Maybe that's good public health or good, good disease prevention. Um, but it also speaks to an environment in which we, we, even as gay Buddhists in San Francisco, right? Pretty, pretty tight group on some levels. We've stopped trusting each other. And then the bottom line is that for a lot of folks, um, we're exhausted. Right. We're physically and emotionally and spiritually exhausted trying to figure all this out. Where do I go? How do I go? How do I protect myself? And for most of us who practice the Bodhisattva, how do I protect everybody else? You know, 
we wear the masks, you know, partially to protect ourselves, but we wear the masks to protect other folks who might in fact be frail elderly, which I'm not yet. Um, <laughs> you know, so there was harm done, and there's harm being done around this, around this current 2000, uh, 2021-2020 thing. Um, and I think it's important for us to say, as Leanne says, take a look at what that means and how we're responding to that. Because I think, you know, that some of us um, think that if people have made a decision not to get vaccinated or not to wear masks or, or to get vaccinated, or, that that there is, um, in this environment we live in, we get suspicious about what that means. Um, and I don't think everybody has to agree with me about vaccinations or masks. I wish everybody agreed with me about everything. Um, but the world is a better place because you don't. <laughs> you know, We get to have debate and we get to de develop equanimity. Um, and it's a really good thing. But I think one of the things that our practice lets us do is the Buddha talked about the innate nobility of all beings. So we get to start out with a belief that whatever decisions people are making, they're making it based on what they think is best for them or their family. Um, and then the other part of that, of course, is um, to say, you know, that lack of harmony about testing and all that comes from all of those factors that I mentioned. Um, and then we get to say, how are we going to deal with our experience of that? So, you know, in some families, um, we learn to fight, flight, or freeze, right? If anything didn't agree with us, or if anybody came at us, um, we would shut down, um, or we would just go along with it. Um, we would ignore it, right? How many of us said, even when COVID started, how many of us said, oh, this will pass. This too shall pass. It's just going to be for a little while. Um, and, you know, the, the, the ways in which we were trained and that we get to operate now um, is, is an opportunity for us. It's an invitation, you know, to view harm and harming, uh, being clear about why it's happening, as clear as we can be, um, uh, and the causes and conditions that, that um, bring, that we arouse through mindful awareness. Um, and then we go to the final two noble truths. Once we've figured out that it's happening because not enough people are vaccinated and maybe we can be volunteer vaccination promoters if that happens to be something that you believe in. Um, maybe certain populations aren't able to get to um, vaccination, so maybe we volunteer to help with that or whatever it might be, whatever it might be. But we move on to those last two noble truths, which are that there's something that can be done to, in, in the tradition to end suffering, and here's the eightfold path of how to end it. Um, and with harm and harming, it's to respond um, to the fact of the harm um, by doing things to uh, eliminate that harm. So, you know, if we, if we put that out, sometimes it's like, ah, man, you know, not everybody can be Anthony Fauci. Um, and not everybody can be a nurse who works 60 hours a week um, in dangerous places um, with um, highly contagious people. Um, those are special people um, that do that kind of work. But you know, our Buddhist practice requires us um, to do something. In Zen and many other lineages, we understand and acknowledge the Bodhisattva path that says we live for the benefit of all beings. And so, whatever lineage you might be practicing in, and some people I'm guessing that will be listening to this um, uh, might not be in the lineage at all, might be, might be people with a meditation and mindfulness practice. Um, but we understand when we sit, and we sit in the present moment, 
in that present moment, there's no separation between all of us. Um, and in that, in that meditation, when we are sitting, um, it is um, uh, our obligation to, to be engaged um, in the lives of others, to live for the benefit of all beings. And that goes across to faith traditions. Um, I was at an uh, event in the Jewish community last week, and I will probably mispronounce this to my apologies, but there is a concept that's called tzedakah. Tzedakah? Um, pretty close. Um, and basically what that says is that doing good for others is not charity. Doing good for others is responsibility. It's it, what, must, what must be done. So how do we do that? How do we you know, go to another one of these talks where we don't leave feeling guilty that we're not doing enough? So I want to share with you a little poem by Martha Postaway. She says, Do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the, in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. So whatever we can do, whether it's to be nice to the neighbor um, who might be isolated in, in his or her apartment, whether it's to help somebody um, carry their groceries up to the store if you see somebody struggling, it's the little things um, um, that we can do, as well as um, more uh, complicated and evolved ways of, of being supported. But the thing is to know that we live for the benefit of all beings, and part of the way to do that um, is just to reduce the chaos in the world, right? So if we um, are spending a lot of time watching um, social media and, and the news, um, and then we get with people and share all that, our interpretations, of course, of all that, um, and we arouse all that anxiety and confusion about that, maybe something we could do um, is, as somebody quoted earlier this year, talk less and say more important things. Speak less and say more important things. <laughs> so, uh, just briefly, I want to just when I first came to Buddhism, it was uh, 1992, um, and and <clears throat> I went to a retreat. I was it was recommended that I go to this retreat. Um, the retreat leader was a gay man, and that was a long time ago. A recovering addict and a, a man living with HIV. So I wasn't really sure why I'd gone on that retreat or what I expected to get from it, but a friend had had recommended it. Um, it took place in a, at a, a retreat center at a mountaintop in the Catskills in New York. Um, and I wasn't sure um, you know, what I was going to do there. And at that time, I don't know if any of you can relate, I had a pretty um, uh, advanced set of skills for deflecting um, and resisting. Anybody, <laughs> anybody trying to change all this? Because I thought, you know, pretty good. So what that uh, man taught me um, the first day I was there is that he shared a teaching with me that said Zen, or Buddhism, if you will, um, is both something you do, a disciplined practice through which you can realize joy, of the joy of being, and it's something you are. So it's something you do, and it's something you are. Your true nature expressing itself moment by moment. So that's, when we try to figure out how to live through major life transitions, or societal or global transitions, um, we have this opportunity to say, hmm, okay, so I want to understand as much as I can. I want to be active in ways that fit with my life and my spirituality. Um, but the fact of the matter is, Thich Nhat Hanh is, is famous for quoting all the time. Um, when people said to him, what's his most important teaching? He said, my life is my teaching. 
how I lead my life is the teaching. How we lead our lives as gay Buddhist men is what we show to the world um, and, and what we get. So I'd gone up to the top of that mountain to get quiet and to sit in nature and relax. And, and um, I thought maybe that this world of dervish of mind and mind might be slowed down. Um, and to be honest, I went there hoping there'd be some cute men um, and some charming New Yorkers that I could meet. Um, and the second teaching um, that I got that first weekend that I was on retreat, not knowing where I was, uh, was a, a, that says the path of Buddhism, Buddhist practice, is long, demanding, deeply rewarding, requires motivation, patience, discipline, dedication, and consistency. And it's best done with a teacher over a long period of time. So I don't know about any of you, any of you back when you were the age I was then, um, but I was accustomed due to my hyperactivity at that time, at that time, um, and my control issues at that time. Um, I was accustomed to being in charge of whatever organization or volunteer group I was involved in, sometimes because I actually had a position, and other times just because I was determined um, to be in charge. And I did one of those things that some of you may be able to relate to, which was I always went in and created change. I always had some proposals and some ideas and things that we could keep in, often just to leave, like a dog outside, just to leave my mark on wherever I had been. Um, so I was not, when I heard that this practice of Zen could help me um, get, get over those control issues, could help me get quiet, could help me really find out who was inside um, this body, that had developed a whole lifestyle based on um, homophobia and harassment and, and other, other things that had happened in life. So, um, when I left Dabazat Zazendo, which was the monastery up on that mountain, um, after my brief experience, and I should point out um, that that teacher um, was gay, um, was a very charming New Yorker. He was cute, as he could possibly be, um, and he was not remotely interested in me other than my spiritual life. So I got what I asked for. I was looking for a cute gay man from New York, and I got one, um, and he did not see me as anything other than a huge um, a spiritual project that, that we wanted to <laughs> So I, I was not clean and sober yet by that time. Um, but when I left that mountain, I went back to Boston, and within three months, um, and I, I belonged, I joined the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, which is a Vipassana practice, the Cambridge Zen Center, which is Korean Zen. Um, I became a consumer of Pema Chodron's um, teachings and workshops. She would come frequently to Boston, where I lived at the time, which is the Tibetan tradition. Um, and I, I developed a, a, a very um, deep, um, connection to Thich Nhat Hanh and the order of interbeing. I also, because I you know, didn't, hadn't written enough checks at that point, joined the Zen Peacemaker Order and the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. So for me, I was determined when I came down from that mountain. I had heard all that stuff about sitting for an hour every day, or half an hour every day, or 10 minutes every day. And I thought, yes, I get that that's the important practice to bring, to be fully aware of who I am in this present moment. But I also need to be busy. You know, there's all this stuff that needs to be done, but there's all these Buddhist opportunities to do it. Um, so I was hungry for peace and serenity. I was hungry, um, and and the way they referred to people like me back in those days was as a buffet Buddhist. <laughs> if there was a workshop or a lineage was having an open house or somebody published a book, um, I, I was in. I, I wanted all of it. 
So the good news is that one of the items um, in my Buddhist buffet was the teaching um, from the Lotus Sutra by Thich Nhat Hanh at a workshop he did in, for two days in Boston. Um, and my journal from that time, I was looking at it this week, um, reveals that the teaching says that um, Bodhi mind means working for the good of every sentient being. That's the teaching from the Lotus Sutra. Bodhi mind, which is what we all have and can develop, means working for the good of every sentient being. So we went right back to what I needed if I was going to practice Buddhism, was I couldn't just sit on the, on the cushion. That felt to me like isolation, stepping out. And Thich Nhat Hanh was very clear um, that that's not what that was, um, that you take the mind of Zazen with you when you go out. And so he quoted the chapter in the Lotus Sutra, the chapter on parables, um, and he says that's where the Buddha cautioned Shariputra, his first disciple, uh, about savoring the joys of personal enlightenment and revealed to Shariputra the truth of the Bodhisattva's mission, which is to continue practice beyond enlightenment. So in some lineages, in some traditions, in some places, there's like a goal of working as hard as you can towards enlightenment or awakening. And, and I respect that, and, and, uh, and I think that's wonderful. In some other lineages, and Buddhism included, um, it's that the mission is to continue teaching and helping others until all beings um, have attained liberation. So whatever lineage we might be in, um, it, we have this opportunity to take that um, uh, to, our, to our hearts and to the way we live. So, as we said, suffering is real, harm and harming are real, um, and we're told to dwell happily in things as they are. Um, and, you know, this community and the people that we care about have been impacted by all of the things that we talked about, that I talked about this morning. Um, and so how do, we, how do we survive in a world um, where there's homophobia and, and uh, racism and HIV and COVID and, um, and addictions and mental illness? So we're told in the Buddhist teachings that the way is not difficult for those with no preferences, right? The way is not difficult for those with no preferences. So the meaning of that, it seems to me, is if we, if we focus one thing at a time, focus on sitting, focus on our breathing, that the way is not difficult. But you know, I've been practicing for 29 years and I'm 70 years old now, um, and I have some preferences. <laughs> if I'm being transparent, I have some preferences. Um, and I'm guessing that you all have some preferences as well. And so for me, I prefer um, to be in your company. Um, Zoom has been a lifesaver for the last 18 months, and I'm glad we have it and will have it. Um, but I prefer to be connected to people. I prefer to be in good health and, and um, have well-being. And I prefer to live in, joy, in the joy and delight. If you know Shantideva um, in his teachings, um, it really talks about that one of the byproducts of this practice should be the recognition of joy and delight. And so one of the ways that I think that we can do that is to understand the Buddhist teaching that, um, that you know, it's not just about suffering, there's an end to suffering. The Buddha is quoted as saying, I came to teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering, one thing. And I think very often um, teachers and students and disciples of the Buddha forget that second half. You know, it's like he came to teach one thing, there is suffering. And what Shantideva really talked about in his poetry and his work was that there's also delight. There's also delight. And, and we get to have that experience without feeling guilty about it. We get to have that experience of delight and joy 
um, and arousal and whatever um, without feeling guilty that not everybody has it. Um, and we do that because we do it from the platform of helping all beings. Right? Um, I would say that you know, there's, there's um, sometimes that I don't do such a good job, um, that I fall down. And the Buddha, as you know, was right there for us on that too. Um, he said, when you fall down, that's the very ground on which you stand back up. And the other teaching, if you fall down seven times, you get up eight. So sometimes I fall down, and sometimes people and places in my life cause me to be broken. And, um, you know, we get shattered. We really do. And so there's this wonderful Japanese art form called kintsugi. Um, some of you probably know about it, but there would be a valuable bowl or cup that would get broken. And, you know, generally throw it away and be a little sad or resentful that it got broken or pissed off at whoever broke it. Um, but this particular art form, kintsugi, um, they actually, it translates as meaning gold leaf. Like basically they would put the cup back together and, uh, with gold in between. And so that it became more beautiful um, and more um, uh, yeah, valuable than it was before. And so now there's a whole art form. It's not always done with gold, but it's the same basic thing. If something is broken, um, when we are broken, you don't give up, you don't throw it away, um, you fix it. And there are ways that we do that, um, and we do it for each other. And I think that takes us to how can we, the Buddha said, the care of others begins and ends with care of self. Right? And so, and we practice metta. Many of you know about metta. Um, so that, you know, that, that um, we have this opportunity to say, ah, metta, you know, we practice um, uh, from ourselves to those we love, to those we're not so fond of, to those um, out there in the world. Um, and so much of our focus, you know, when we talk, um, is about how to take care of other beings and how to live for the benefit of other beings. But I think that's really important um, uh, uh, teaching, is that it begins and ends with care for ourselves. And in the Pali Canon, um, many of you have heard this before, but I think it's important, um, it says, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and that person is not to be found. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. And so I think, as we try to figure out um, what we as, as um, gay Buddhists, or we as a gay community of, of Buddhists, um, have to offer to ourselves in the world is an absolute fearless courage about getting together spiritually, and getting together emotionally, and as life is now allowing us to do, to get together physically when it's appropriate for us and when we're comfortable. Um, and to understand that the, the real genius of the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering, there's a reason for it, there's a way to end it, and here's the way. That's a good metaphor for life, right? Mm -hmm. That there are things that happen in all of our lives every day, and if we're sitting um, in, our, in, in meditation, if we're bringing mindful awareness to all the various aspects of our life, um, we get this chance to say, hmm, I was broken by whatever happened yesterday, and now I can be fixed, and it can be consumed, I can be fixed better. Um, there's this quote by somebody, probably a war general, but um, we are stronger, Churchill I think it was, we are stronger at the, sometimes at the places we were broken. Um, so I want to close and, and uh, hear from a few of you if you got uh, things that you're doing to survive and thrive in these times. And this is a poem by Roshini Ray, and I'll close with this. 
There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, and out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside us which is unbreakable. So, um, I hope that all of us acknowledge that we are breakable and that with a little gold leaf we can be perfect together, <laughs> um, stronger and unbreakable, and that the way we do that is by this, this practice together in this room with our friends on Zoom and with friends who will listen um, to our conversation later. So we are together, and uh, that's, uh, GBF is, uh, is once again leading the way for coming back into a, um, uh, an openness which is unbreakable as a community. We survived the last 18 months, and we're on to the next 18. Thanks, everybody. So, questions? We have some time for questions or thoughts about how you're, how you're all surviving. Well, this is really wonderful. I, have, um, I guess my question would be, do you have any kind of clues or towards like knowing when your life has fallen into your open hands versus the control queen who like, uh, is like hungry for that next project? Yeah. Good question. Good question. Yeah, I think that's for me. And you know, in, in Zen and, and other lineages of Buddhism, we say shikantans. It's the sitting is the key, the absolute core element of a Buddhist practice. And I, I really, it changed my life. Even even from that little weekend that I had all those years ago, um, it changed my life. And the fact that that in sitting still, I got I came to Buddhist practice four years before I got clean and sober. And how I got clean and sober was that I would sit in quiet with mindful awareness, I would arouse um, well-being. And it was like, okay, I can't do that and continue this other life, so I had to do something about it. And I think the same is true with day-to-day -day life in the 20-some years since then, which is that when I sit and I arouse mindful awareness and I say, so who am I? What kind of person do I want to be? And one example of that is, like, I don't know if any of you can relate, but there was that movie Boys in the Band, and I was one of those people. <laughs> we got in our group, and we had sarcasm and, and cutting behavior, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and what I knew was that that was designed to protect us, you know. We were out there in the world where we couldn't say what we wanted and do what we wanted, so we developed this a way of being in the world, <clears throat> which was closeted, and a way of being with each other, which was flamboyant, to put it in a word. Um, and what I discovered in, by <clears throat> my meditation practice was that I wasn't a sarcastic, mean, horrible person. I was a nice guy. Um, and I did not want anyone to know that for decades because it would make me vulnerable. Um, but I actually was a nice guy. And so mindful awareness just said, just be you. Um, uh, Suzuki Roshi says, when Zen is Zen, you are you. When you are you, Zen is Zen. So it's just that mindful awareness, if we, if we have that practice, um, I think our intuition, that mindful awareness, um, that intuition that you have inside, that we all have inside, will tell us when something smells funny, when something's not quite working. 
And often, the gift is that it did work. You know, they were adaptable behaviors that we had for years, and they did work. Um, and now, the question is, you know, do we have to hang on to them anymore? And some of you probably know the Buddha had a teaching about if you get to the edge of the water and you want to get to the other side, right? Um, you build a raft, and you build a strong, good, heavy raft so it floats all the way to the other side. He said, but how silly would you be if once you got there, you picked that raft up and carried it across to our land with you? <laughs> so there are things that we developed as practices to protect ourselves and to keep ourselves safe, um, and they were skillful means at the time, right? Um, and now perhaps we can, we can uh, make different choices. Different choices. Yes. Yes. Uh, first of all, just thank you uh, for coming, showing up, and, and giving us such a great talk as usual. Um, and uh, I too have found the sitting to be really core because it's tribute to many people, but there's this quote that you know all of humankind's problems are the result of the ability to sit quietly alone in the room. And I think you know. It uh, brings us more into uh, direct contact with our life. <laughs> the other question is a more sort of uh, theoretical, but you know, the um, I had a question when you were talking about uh, Lien's uh, Four Noble Truths, the harm and uh, harming others. Um, there's a way that there's always, you know, as a fellow trained. Uh, psychology person with a spiritual bent um, that we're, they're always trying to avoid the spiritual bypass, right? And um, it seems to me maybe the way of saying harm and uh, doing harm is it, it sort of personalizes it. You know, there's always the relative and the absolute. And uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, now, I, I think that it's, it's, it's both, of course. Yeah. Good, good Buddhist answer, it's both. Uh, <laughs> I think there is suffering. Everybody has suffering from yes. the time we're born through the time we, we transition. Um, and I think what this other teaching is suggesting is that if we say everything that goes on in life is just part of there is suffering, um, a lot of that it will just continue on. I do agree with you that there's a risk if we start to say, well, there is, there are, there is harm and harm, harming. There's harming behavior being done, and that we should focus on that and try to change it or, or you know, arrest it or whatever, stop it. Um, but I do think that there's, that's a risk because now we're talking about othering. So somebody's doing the harm. So suffering is all of us, but now there's somebody doing the harm. But the reality is sometimes there is. Right? Yeah, sometimes right. there is. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, not somebody who disagrees with me about the importance of vaccines. Um, but somebody who has willfully manipulated the truth and is spreading that around on social media. So, so yes. one person is is going to suffer, you know, um, and and we are going to suffer. The other person is causing harm, mm -hmm. and I think that that's sort of a way of, of acknowledging, you know, the world we live in is is um, you know some things have been um, have come to us. Um, and some things have been forced on us, and, and, yeah. uh, and so it's um, yeah. different, different ways. Because that's in the third and fourth level truth in, in those teachings. Then it's what are you going to do about it? Yeah. You know the eightfold path of action and resistance and change. So. Thank you.
I'm sorry we're out of time. It went really fast into the rain. Um, so um, I don't know if you can stay for a few minutes after we'll have a social hour or a social half hour um, following this. Um, so do we have any announcements? Uh, yes. On November 13th, David will be returning here for a day long, 10 to 5. And uh, if there's no, you know, just, just come and then we'll also be Zooming, I assume. So November 13th, 10 to 5. And there'll be an hour and a half break for lunch and some breaks in the morning. Come on, come on. Do we have a host today? Sure do. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes, I am your host. Uh, um, and so there's some sweet stuff out there for you to eat. I'll be passing around the Donna Bowl. Uh, suggested donation, 10 to $20, uh, or anything, or nothing if you can't afford it. And uh, the money goes to the rental of this space, and uh, maybe someday soon, our monthly dinners at the uh, um, Street. Lock and Street uh, project. And also, it goes to, uh, to uh, as an honorary for our speakers. So please be generous and practice on it. That's it. Our speaker next week is Melvin Escobar. He's been here before. Yeah, yeah he's from the East Bay Meditation Center. Right. Can we read this back? He has. Okay. Um, so can we? He's going to read his bio. Oh, you're going to read. Okay. Salman Escobar is a bilingual, bicultural Dharma teacher, licensed psychotherapist, and certified yoga instructor. He is a graduate of East Bay Meditation Center's Commit to Dharma. And for more than a decade, has served East Bay Meditation Center in a variety of roles, including on the development team for Resilience, Refuge, and Revolution, a six-month leadership program for people of color. He has devoted 25 years to serving people from marginalized communities, drawing on his life experience as a queer man of color from an immigrant working-class background. Having encountered the priceless wisdom embodied in Buddhism and yoga, he continues daily to learn the revolutionary potential of body-centered contemplative practices for personal and social healing. Also, GBF meets online on Zoom on Wednesday evenings at 7.30. Correct. People are welcome to join in uh, for that. So can we gather in a circle for the dedication of merit? Um, Stephen, would you like to do it, or do you want us to use the power uh, Yeah, if you've got one that you usually use, right? We do. Um, by the power and truth of this practice, May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Everybody bow to the third one. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org. <laughs>